Well, this year marks, as I think many of you know, we've mentioned this, but this year marks the 50th anniversary of Baraka Bible Church. 50 years. It all started back in October of 1970. I was not alive, but uh, some of you were were there, and some of you were there soon after. But it's 1970 in Red Oak, uh, just between College Park and and Union City and the Eastern Elementary School where the first services were held in October 1970. But for 50 years now, by God's grace, men and women, young and old, have been part of this local church family, sharing in this common mission of, of seeking to glorify God by making disciples of Christ at home and around, around the world. And so gathering together because of the gospel and around the gospel, growing together uh, in the gospel, going together with the gospel, all for the glory of God. This is this has been the trajectory of the church, and it is His grace that's enabled that. We are we're making plans to mark this significant milestone in our church's history uh, this fall, and so there will be more details to come, and 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 ways in which you can and can be involved in that. But it's important to see that Baraka is not just a 50-year-old church. That's not when the story began. It, we go back way before that. We, the, 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 it's a 2,000-year-old church, and in many ways, in some sense, it's much older than that. We've been looking in Genesis, and, and from Genesis onward, particularly Genesis 3 onward, there, we're part of this unfolding story of what God is doing and preserving this seed of promise, a people of promise. This, this is an old, old story, and it's our story. And so we, we have to keep that in mind. And so Baraka Bible Church is connected uh, it to and is, and is a localized expression of the wider universal church, the body of Christ, in which everybody who is in Christ is part of. And, and, and wherever a local church is, and whenever that local church exists and, and congregates, that purpose and the mission of the church is the same. The church exists, like all things, for the glory of God. I was... Looking, I, I, I thought I remembered this. I walk by it all the time, but I, I don't notice it often anymore. But there's a plaque on Building B, and I thought when we put it up there, and I went confirmed this morning, but it says dedicated to the glory of God when we built that building over there. And it, it's not just the buildings. Yes, every building, every square inch of this property should be dedicated to the glory of God. But who we are, we are we've, we're to be a church that's committed and set apart for the glory of God. That's, that's why we exist. We'll talk more about the glory of God in the next couple of weeks as we, as we look at different aspects of this and how it relates to what we do as a church. But just a quick definition this morning. The glory of God, when we say that, it, it's not just one of God's attributes. You know, we, we talk, list, if you've ever done a study or read a book on the attributes of God, glory is, is different. It's like holiness in the sense that it's, it's more the sum of His his, his attributes. And so holiness is kind of the sum total of God's perfections. Glory is the manifestation of all of God's perfections. And so it's, it's displayed. One person said it's a, it's a beauty that emanates from, from his character. That's glory. And this glory of God, the glory of God is the, is the overarching purpose of God. You go, you push the, the, the boundaries of, 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 
of the universe, of history, of everything, all the way out to the outer edges. And what do you have? You have God at the beginning. You have God at the end. It's His glory. It is, it is the big arch of, of everything. It's why He made the world. It's why He made everything in the world. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And so creation and everything in it has this, we say, doxological purpose. Doxa is the New Testament Greek word for glory. And so we, we, we say that. And, but it, the church, in a special way, has this doxological purpose. We're created, we're set apart for God's glory. Paul said this explicitly in his letter to the Ephesian church. And, he, and it applies to every church, every local church, at all times. And he says... In Ephesians 3.21, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So God's glory is why we exist as a church. We don't exist to keep the lights on. We don't exist to, to make our monthly budget. We don't exist to provide safe alternatives for children and their families. We don't exist uh, to, to kind of have a platform for self-improvement. No, we exist we exist for God's glory. That's, that's it. And that's so important. That's, that's got to be over everything that we think about, everything we do, everything we think about the church. The body of Christ, the universal church, is made up of all those who have been called out. That's what the church means in Greek. It's, it's ekklesia. Ek is, a little, is out. It's, we've called out ones. We're the called out ones. The Lord has called us out. He's redeemed us to salvation. That's what makes us part of the church. It's not those who've worked hard to become better people and have decided to kind of group together. We can't explain the church sociologically in that way. No, the church can only be explained doxologically. The Lord has called out a people for His glory. It's made up of those who've been called by His sovereign grace, grace that comes to us uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, that what, because of what He accomplished for our salvation through His death and resurrection. And so, as we look in, in passages like Ephesians 1 and see all that God has done, He's chosen us, He's predestined us, He's called us, He's adopted us, He's redeemed us, forgiven us, lavished His love on us, sealed us. Why? All for this purpose, for the praise of His glory. That's it. And so, this is, this is foundational to who we are as a church. It's foundational. And, and, and it, was this, it was this very thing that when, when, uh, that when the ash layer of, of uh, just kind of dead religion was, was covering over uh, the Scriptures and the, tr- and, the, and the truth of God's Word and the Gospel, and, and when the, when the, in the 15th and 16th centuries, when the Protestant Reformation, when that spark just set ablaze, the church and, and these, these truths were recovered. This is what this is what they were the church was called back to. And this is this again is our history. And so they we have these we talk about the five solas of the Reformation, and they're all in reference to salvation, particularly justification. We're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Alone. One, one writer said of, of this particular sola, soli deo glory is the glue that holds all the other solas in place, or the center that draws the other solas into a grand unified whole. Someone else said, it's the lifeblood of the solas. 
And so the fact that salvation is by grace alone, it's through faith alone, it's in Christ alone, without any meritorious contribution on our part. None. It ensures then that all of the glory goes to God alone. It's by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. So salvation is all of grace. It's, it's not our works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Why? So that no one can boast because the glory belongs to God. Paul writes in Romans 3.27, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? And he says, no, emphatically, no, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. And so from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. Soli Deo Gloria. And so as we sat at, set out on our our 50th year of ministry together as this local expression of, of the church, it's good for us to recommit ourselves often, not just every 50 years, and we do this often. This is why we gather, in a sense, every Lord's Day. It's to, to recommit ourselves to these doxological, to this doxological purpose. So this week and the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to be considering the glory of God and its implications in our church. And so the glory of God and our gathering together, that's what we're looking at today, this Lord's Day gathering, the glory of God and our growing together next week, and then the third week, the glory of God and our going together to our community and, and to the ends of the earth. We're going to be looking in Hebrews 12 this morning. <coughs> Hebrews 12. Now, Hebrews 12 is not explicitly about the Lord's Day gathering. Now, it features prominently in the letter of Hebrews. And we don't have time to give a lengthy survey of the book of Hebrews. But, but over and over again, the writer is, is, what he's doing, he's calling the church to, again to assemble together, to gather together. And this is much uh, of how the message of Hebrews is going to be applied in, in their context. And so the letter of Hebrews was written, written to primarily ethnically Jewish Christians. And these believers were facing growing persecution in their day. And so these are first or second generation believers for the most part, full, and then they've, they've, they've manifested this full, spirit-wrought, courageous faith in the, in the face of intense persecution and suffering. They've, they've been threatened, they've been slandered, they've been beaten, they've been, had their goods confiscated, they've been imprisoned, and some have been killed, and, and, and so on and on. They've, they've faced intense persecution, they, they have left the relative comfort of Judaism, so now they're not only persecuted by the Romans, they're also persecuted by their fellow countrymen, their, their family members, their, their neighbors, and, and, and people that once were dear friends, now they're, those people are persecuting them. So they've, beyond that, they've left all of the pomp and, and glory of Judaism, you think of the temple and, and all of the ceremony and the, and the priesthood and, the, and the, the, the garb and the sacrifices and the festivals and all that's associated with that, with temple worship and with life and Judaism. And what do they have now? In the place of all that elaborate liturgy and, and all the ornate buildings, what do they have? They're, they're, they're huddled together, meeting in ordinary houses, the front rooms of houses, simply reading, explaining the scriptures, praying together, taking communion together. There are no elaborate symbols, just bread and wine, 
singing hymns together. There's no temple choir, no paid musicians like they're used to. Sharing with one another as, as needs come up and giving to one another. No elaborate, you know, coffers in the temple where everybody goes and gives their, their offerings. None of that. And so some in their hearts, they're starting to think and feel uh, like Israel did in the, back in the wilderness wanderings. Remember when they, they started kind of pining for the good old days? Oh, oh, we had it so good in Egypt. Yeah, yeah, we were slaves. But it was so much better. You know, we had, we had, we had, free, we had no freedom, of course, but we had fish. And we had cucumbers. And we had garlic. And we had all these spices. And, and now all we have is this manna. I mean, this is, you know, what do we have now? So they, they, this is how they thought. And, and so these early Christians are wrestling in sort of a similar way, it seems. They're looking at their past through rose-colored glasses at kind of the good old days of the way we had it. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing, this is a long, uh, long cohesive appeal. The whole book of Hebrews, these 13 chapters, it's like he's putting his hands on their shoulders and waking them up from this nostalgic daydream. Saying, no, wake up, wake up. You're missing it. Over and over again. The whole, the whole letter he's making. I know it, Hebrews can be a challenging, a challenging book to, to read and to study. And there's, there's passages and we get tripped up and verses where we, and phrases and those things that gets tripped up. But the, the message is very clear in Hebrews. And it's so powerful. And it's simply this. Jesus is better. He's superior. He is, he is better. He's better than anything, everything that you've left behind. He's enough. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the priesthood of Aaron. He's greater. The, 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 the new covenant that's been inaugurated by Jesus' blood is better than the old covenant. Jesus' dwelling place with the Father is better than the tabernacle. Jesus' once for all sacrifice is greater than all of those temple sacrifices. That's, that's the appeal that he's making uh, and that's basically an outline of the book that I've just given you there. And so his appeal to them consistently throughout this letter is this. It's fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And you will see all of those things that you wish you could go back to. You'll see them in the right and proper light. And so it, it, the, because these, these, these Christians are struggling like kids on Christmas morning. They open up their gifts and what do they do? They start playing with the the packaging and the box and, and do all that. And then they've got this expensive gift that you've saved up a lot of money to buy this for them that you know they're going to love. And, and then they're, they're just ignoring that. And this, this writer is saying, that old stuff, it was packaging. You, the gift is here. You have Jesus. Look to Him. Fix your eyes on Him. And so he's been making this case all kinds of different ways throughout this letter. And now he comes to the big climax of the entire appeal. Here in chapter 12. And again, it's not explicitly about the Lord's Day gathering. It's, it's about more. It's about much more. But it's not about less than this. And again, the, the, this features prominently throughout this book. This is one of the main ways believers keep their eyes fixed on Christ. Don't forsake gathering together. Draw near. Encourage one another. And the, all of these things that happen in our Lord's Day gatherings. And so, so, the, so he's, you, we read that phrase at the end of this chapter there. That acceptable worship. That acceptable worship he's talking about here is bigger than simply the, the, the worship we do together in this Lord's Day gathering. But it's not less than this gathering. Romans 12. We were there last week. Uh, Thomas. He preached beautifully. 
Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's the same word. It's the same type of worship. That service of worship. This is your spiritual service of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's the same word, same idea. It's a, it's, it's a life of worship of, to God. Giving ourselves to God. And this is one of the primary expressions of that. And so our gatherings, this is what I want us to see. Our gatherings are about God and His glory. Not about us. They have a distinctly doxological purpose when we gather on the Lord's day. So here's kind of the big idea, and it's this, is that the glory of God will be the focus of our gatherings when we understand that our worship is grounded in these new spiritual realities. So the glory of God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be more, more sharply the focus of our gatherings together when, when we when we understand that we are grounded in these new spiritual realities. All right, let's look at these realities. There are three that we're going to see. First thing that he tells us is there's a, there's a new place to which we have come. A new place to which we have come. So the writer, as you can see there in, the, in, in verses 18 to 24, he's drawing this sharp contrast between these two significant mountains in, in redemptive history. Sinai and Zion. Uh, just as a little side note, I just thought this was interesting. Some of you uh, listen to different preachers and over the internet and stuff, but some of you guys know H.B. H. Charles Jr., pastors down in Florida, uh, fantastic preacher of the word. I, I saw an Instagram post this week, and his dad was a pastor in California. That's where he grew up, and his dad died when, uh, H., when his son was uh, just a teenager, 16, and he ended up Filling that, he ended up becoming the senior pastor at age 17 of the church that his dad died in. And so, a lot of you know E.V. Hill, but he's also a pastor close by. But E.V. Hill pastored Mount Zion, a missionary Baptist church. H.B. Uh, Charles ended up pastoring his dad's church, which was Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church. And I, th- I just thought that was humorous in light of, uh, of our passage today here. Zion was a much better name for a church than Sinai. Um, but anyway, that's, that's, I don't know why I'm telling this, but I found it interesting. So the writer, he's, he's making us look back, way back to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. This, this is where God led Moses, where God gave his law to his people. And so look again, verse 18... <coughs> For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So when the Lord was present on that mountain, it it was a terrifying place. Yeah, the description in, in Exodus 19 that we read at the beginning of the surface, there was thick smoke and earthquakes and loud thunder and lightning and on and on. And, and there were these loud sounds, trumpet blasts. They grew louder with each one. Just this piercing noise. It was terrifying. All of this was there to demonstrate the, the presence and the incomparable greatness and power and authority and sheer holiness of the Lord. His glory. And the Lord commanded Moses to warn the people that if, if anyone in Israel, that he told them, don't go up the mountain, don't touch it, or you're going to die. 
And even animals that touched the mountain had to be stoned to death. What, what is that about? It's just showing the costliness of uncleanness in God's holy presence. It's terrifying. When the Lord spoke from the midst of the smoke that covered the mountain, as we see here in verse 19, the Lord begged, begged for Moses to speak to them instead of God directly. They feared for their lives. And verse 21 says, even Moses was afraid. So this mountain, it's, it's, it's the place of terror for Israel. It's a place of trembling. They, when they stood before it, they shook with fear. That's the picture. Sinai represented what these Jewish Christians had left behind. It represented the law that condemns. Yes, they, they missed some physical trappings. They missed the temple. They missed the circumstance, the liturgy. But, but they were in bondage. They, they used to be in this terrifying place, Mount Sinai. But no longer. But no longer. He says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. He's speaking to these believers. But you have come to Mount Zion. And there's a stark contrast the writer is making here between the old and the new, between the law and between grace, between the the terror of the law and the freedom and joy of the gospel. That's what he's doing with these mountains, this this, this symbol here that he's, he's presenting to us. Why? Now we ask the question, why did God give the law then in the first place? Why was there Sinai? Why was it an end of its in, in, into itself? No, not at all. Was it so that they might possibly keep the law and live forever? No, that's not why God gave the law. Paul makes this very clear in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19 and following. He's answering that very question and he says what? That the law was given to imprison everyone under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He goes on to say in verse 24, The law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This is is it. So the law wasn't defective. The law did its job. By nature, we're all blind to the extent of our sin uh, before a holy God. We think, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. I've got some flaws, but I'm not that bad. And then... We see the law of God. And it shows us God's absolute, absolute holiness. His standard of utter perfection. And we're faced with that. And we're forced to say with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord. And, and so it is. And so, <coughs> and the, what the reality is, is the, the route to Zion, where we have come, it goes through Sinai, where we encounter the terrors of God's law. But, it leads us to Jesus, who removes the dread of judgment by fulfilling the law in our place and suffering the penalty of the law for us. He doesn't doesn't do away with the law. He fulfills the law. And we should, and this is what the writer is saying, we should never, ever long to go back. We have come to Zion. Don't be drawn back to Sinai. 
And so look at how the writer describes our new reality here. It's this new spiritual reality that should fuel our worship, brothers and sisters. This, this is the place to which we've come. Instead of fear and separation, there is joy and inclusion. That's what he's saying. So look at verse 22. Just Let's just unfold these glorious realities that are ours now. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So Mount Zion, it's the, it's the picture. This is where God, the King, dwells with His people. That's what it stood for. To the city of the living God. City is mentioned in Hebrews more than any other, any other New Testament book. It has multiple references to city, cities. And so, just one example is in chapter 11, verse 10. You can probably look across the page. And, and, he, and what he's describing here, this is the, the, what the text says, the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is what he's talking about. City, it represents, it represents order, orderliness, security. It's, it's the place where our needs are met. It's where, it's where there's fellowship with others. There's safety in numbers, we, we say. But this isn't just any city. This is the city of the living God. And he says the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the city John saw coming down out of heaven from God. Revelation 21.2. It represents God dwelling among his people. That time when God will wipe away every tear. And there will be no more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. Nothing. That will all be gone. That's, that's what he has in view. But that's not all. As he says. He goes on. And, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. I realize we don't use festal. That's probably not a word you've heard this week. So you come here. But what he's saying is we've come to a mountain with myriads of angels joyfully worshiping God. Celebrating God. Now, as we read these, just, first, just in verse 22, we realize there is an ultimate fulfillment of these verses that is still future. It, we're, it, it awaits Christ's return. And so you can see this eschatological tension here in the text. There's, there's this already aspect to it, and there's this not yet aspect to this passage that we're going to see. And so the writer is urging these Christians as they're suffering and as they're being tempted to draw back. He's just saying, things are not as they appear. That's what he's telling them. It, what you see is not all that there is. Yes, you're suffering... Yes, um, it's not that spectacular right now, meeting in these little house churches, and, and, and it's not what it you know, used to be, and what, what Saturdays used to be for you, Sunday's not quite the same. He's saying, but wait, but wait. And while you wait for this full and final fulfillment and, and the, the, the glorious eternal enjoyment of these things, there is a reality that you're already being brought into now. And that's the tension in this passage. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I think he says it very concisely and helpfully here. He says, we gather, as talking about as even as we gather on the Lord's Day, we gather as it were on the low hills of heavenly worship. That's good. He says, we come and it's as though the walls between heaven and earth have become so paper thin that you can almost hear the echo of the praise of heaven. That's, that's, the, that's what the writer is doing here. That's what he's setting before these suffering Christians. 
We were being tempted to be drawn back. While we can't experience anything as glorious as that scene that we all know and love from Revelation chapter 5 where you have thousands and thousands of angels belting out Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We don't experience that in its fullness yet. But we should keep that in mind even as we worship now. We're joining, we sing this. Let us love and sing and wonder. We're, we're joining in this angel chorus when we gather with one another on the Lord's day and worship the Lord. That's what he's, that's the case that he's making. We should think about that. Maybe next week when we're coming here, think about this passage and let that kind of frame your thoughts on the Lord's Day gathering as you come. That's amazing enough. We could end right there, but that's not all. (laughs) Look what he goes on. Verse 23. And you've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. (laughs) Uh, Let me just quote somebody to give you the sense of this ff bruce he says all the people of christ are the firstborn children of god through their union with him who is the firstborn par excellence so this is the saints but that's not all either he says and you've come to god the judge of all god who is the judge of all he he brings perfect justice <sighs> won't that be glorious And there is perfect justice. We've come to the God who is judge of all, brothers and sisters. We have come to Him presently. And we who are in Christ, we have nothing to fear when we stand before the judge of all the earth because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. All right, we're getting there. That's not all. He goes on. And we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He's he's talking about the spirits of justified men and women and children who've died, who've already gone to heaven. And we know, we know many of these. Many of these have sat in these very seats. Many of them have sat here recently. They haven't received their new resurrection bodies yet, but their spirits, the text says, they're already made perfect. For them, all temptation to sin is done it's past tense oh i mean they're part of the church that we sang about that william cooper wrote the lyrics that we just sang in a moment ago that the, the church that's saved to sin no more now they're there now there are many times when i'll confess it is thrilling to be in this gathering with you on the lord's day when we're singing songs and when I, when I hear your voices singing from behind me and when, when the word is being read and, and, and opened and, and when we celebrate at the table, when they, it's just thrilling to be here. But listen, we're still weak. We're still limited. We're still failing. We're still wretched, tempted, struggling sinners. Yes, we're covered by Christ's blood. Absolutely. And we remember that constantly. We are... At the same time, saints and sinners. But there's going to be a day when we will only be saints. There will be no more sin. And yet, we can still, we can still be thrilled praising the Lord here when we're at the same time sinners and saints. But what must it be like for the spirits of the righteous ones made perfect? And as we worship today here, they're worshiping now. 
that's not all. Here's the best part. Verse 24. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You've come to him. You can't see him now, Peter says, but you love him. You can't see him, but you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and what? Full of glory. But to be there, to be with him, and we will be, to see him, to see Jesus, and we will. Oh. So we wait, but while we wait, we worship as those who've come to Jesus, mediator of this new covenant, the only one who can mediate between the Father, the Holy Father, and us as sinful creatures. But that's not all. And then he says, and you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel say? You've been with us through our series in Genesis. The blood of Abel fell in the ground and cried out and demanded justice. But he says here, there's better blood. There is richer blood. There is better blood than the blood of Abel. There is blood that has fallen upon the soil of the earth, the blood of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And that blood has cried out for mercy and forgiveness. Because he absorbed justice in himself. This is, brothers and sisters, the new spiritual reality we are living in now. This is the mountain to which we've come by faith. This is the one we've been brought to. It's like the writer is saying to us, this is where you go to church every Sunday. You're, you, this, is, this is your church. You're in the connect class. You're in the newcomers class of this church. This is, yes, I realize this is ultimately future in terms of its full and final fulfillment, but this is actually present for us. This is, this is what we're brought into. You've come to this. He's saying, this is what you've come to. Yes, it's ahead, but it is certain. And don't even, don't even think of going back. Don't even think of going back to the, the terrors that you left. Don't lose sight of the benefits of Zion. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Him, brothers and sisters. That's His appeal. That's our appeal. There was, we, were, we had time this last weekend, to, uh, the weekend before, to go on our elder retreat. And we were talking about our Lord's Day gatherings. This, is, we, this was one of the things that we, we talked about that first night, that the purpose of our gatherings, what we want week in and week out, is to point one another to Christ. This is why we, we come. And so we need to see this. We need to see this every Sunday. Again, maybe read this next week before you come. I will. Uh, all right. So this is it. The glory of God is going to be the focus of our gatherings together when we understand that our worship is grounded in these new spiritual realities. First one is this. There's a place to which we've come. Secondly, and we'll be much quicker here, there's a kingdom that we have received. There's a kingdom that we have received. So there's this warning here for these believers, for us. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. We'll come back to that in a moment. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And then he 
explains, verse 27, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So the author is quoting from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 here, or, Hebrews, from Haggai, Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 6. He's describing, though, this future scene, the shaking. And so his point is one that we need to hear, and, and it puts our daily experience into perspective here. His point is this. I know this is one of those passages in Hebrews that can be a little tricky to untangle. What's what's the point in its its context here? But his point is this. What can be shaken will be shaken. Why? So that what cannot be shaken will remain. That's his point. That's That's what he's saying here. And so he gets to the conclusion, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's, that's the overarching statement. So at, at Sinai, earth shook, but at Zion's installation, as yet future, the earth and the heavens are going to shake. And so the writer is warning that those who seek their security in created things and things that you can touch, things of this earth, they're going to share in the disillusion of creation in that final shakeup. And so while God's people, though, who trust in the Lord as their security, they will be vindicated. For theirs is a kingdom, that the kingdom they've received cannot be shaken. All right. So now there, there's debate. Okay, we don't have time to get into this about what the shaking refers to and, and how far in the future. Was this something the original audience was looking forward to? It was more of a political shake-up and Rome being overthrown? Or was this this future eschatological shake-up? Who's being judged here? Whatever the precise meaning of the shaking, the emphasis falls on the kingdom, which is the embodiment of stability. It cannot be shaken. It stands in contrast to the fragility of everything else that will be shaken and will be removed. And so the, this kingdom, he says, is something we've, we've already received, and yet it's, it's still to come in its fullness. This is that already not yet tension that we're working with. We're, we're just waiting for the king to return, and then it will be done. So, also note, we, we receive this kingdom. You know, say we work for it, we don't merit it, we receive it. It's a gift that God freely bestows on all who believe. And so what encouragement, brothers and sisters, to us? What encouragement? We have received by God's mercy a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Everything else is shaking. Everything else will ultimately, eschatologically be shaken. Kingdoms that seem so powerful will crumble. Kings, princes, rulers, dictators, they're going to come down. Our world seems to be upside down, but we have received a kingdom presently. We've received it that cannot be shaken. Again, think of those early believers left everything just persecuted on all sides what encouragement what encouragement to us this is reason to worship God and the greater we understand how grounded we are in this new spirituality spiritual reality that we have received this kingdom that cannot be shaken oh how much more will the glory of God be the focus in our gatherings together that's my point lastly this last new spiritual reality is that there, there is therefore this response that we should have. A response we should have. Verse 25, quickly. See then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So there's these kind of commands here that are embedded in this passage. He's saying, please, please listen. 
Don't refuse him who is speaking. Make sure you listen. He knows that they're in danger of doing just that. Refusing the one who's speaking. If we had time to sit here and read through the whole letter from beginning to end, we would see this. The writer keeps coming back to this. This, this, this appeal. Will you not listen? Don't harden your hearts today while it's called today. Don't harden your hearts there's this tendency to think, well, if we've moved from, from Sinai, from the terrors of the law, oh, what relief. We can, we, can just, we can just do whatever we want. We can do whatever we think's right in our own eyes. And the writer's saying, no, no. He says, you totally misunderstand it. That's what you're thinking. The greatness of your privileges in Christ, it calls for this full-hearted response. So he's saying, listen, we have a, a real obligation to trust Jesus by seeing, or, or we have this obligation to trust Jesus as seeing that it's by faith, by faith that we interact with the true yet invisible reality of this unshakable kingdom. It's by faith. So we have to believe our pardon by the blood of Jesus. We have to obey the Lord by drawing near, a phrase that the writer uses multiple, many times in this letter. So we, we look to Jesus over and over and over. Not shrinking away from him. Again, that's the big appeal. Our own sin consciousness is what typically, our shame, our guilt, is what typically motivates us to shrink away from the voice and the presence of God, isn't it? That's, that is for me. But faith, it refuses to examine oneself in, in, uh, with, with dread as the law forced the people to do at Mount Sinai. Instead, faith leads us to examine the sacrifice of Christ and says, is it sufficient? Is it enough? Is Jesus accepted? If yes, then we are too. So he said, do not refuse him who speaks because Christ is accepted. We celebrate in Jesus. We celebrate by Jesus. We celebrate because of Jesus. And he says in verse 28 then, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful. It could be translated, let us hold on to grace. I know that sounds very different, but gratitude and grace are very similar and the meaning depends upon the context and really the meanings bleed together if you if you think about it because we've come to mount sinai to mount zion because we've received this kingdom that cannot be shaken let us in gratitude for this grace hold firmly to this grace don't 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 in ingratitude abandon god's grace in christ go back to legal bondage that's what he's saying here one one thing this shows again it's it's how our worship in our worship of God and our service to Him, it's not an attempt to pay Him back for anything. That's not it. That's impossible. It's, it's the overflow of a heart that understands grace and gives thanks, what Paul says, for this indescribable gift. And again, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's in light of the mercies of God that we present ourselves as this, as this sacrifice to God this uh, reasonable service of worship. It's reasonable. It makes sense, as Thomas was saying last week, in light of the God's grace that's so amazing. That's what the appeal is. And then he says, finally, and then let us, therefore, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Offer to God acceptable worship. Worship, not perfect worship. That would be impossible. But there, there is an acceptable kind of worship, which means there's an unacceptable kind of worship. 
And he goes on to say what's acceptable. He said, we offer this worship with reverence and awe. It's just an attitude of mind that acknowledges the greatness of God and who we are before him. That's what he's saying. This is, this is how we must worship. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. That's the language, what? Of Mount Sinai. He, he's going back. He's saying, that God, their God, that's our God. God hasn't changed. It's not that, it, that he used to be almighty and the holy and the terrifying one at Sinai. Now, he's just kind of a pushover God at Zion. That's not it at all. It's the same God, same perfections. God hasn't changed. What's happened? Christ has come. Christ has come. The cross, yes, it removes the dread of judgment that we, we don't have to fear, fear His wrath any longer, but, but He is still our, a consuming fire. He's to be worshipped with reverence and awe. It should never remove a sense of reverence in the presence of one who is so holy. The angels of heaven who've never sinned, they, they are... They, they, they worship God in reverence and fear in this proper sense of understanding how much greater God is. That's what we're saying. Not dread, not terror, but an appropriate awareness of the greatness of God and His glory. He's a God of grace. He's a God of glory. And those are not incompatible. F.F. F. Bruce says, Reverence and awe before His holiness are not incompatible with graceful trust and love in response to his mercy. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is, what, this is what we do. We come together, we, we, we revel in the grace and the glory of God. This is what's to define our gatherings. We come together fixing our eyes on Jesus every, every week. Let's pray together. Lord, as we, as we continue to worship, as we sing, as we come to the table, Father, what, what drives us in our, our worship of you, Lord, is not, uh, not us thinking what we can do to appease you. It's not us thinking what we can do to help one another. Ultimately, our, what drives us, Lord, is not methodology, it's doxology. It's not doing what we want, it's doing what you want, Lord. And, 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 and the, what, that, the reason that that's the case is because of these new spiritual realities that are ours in Christ. Thank you that we have come to Mount Zion. Thank you that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thank, thank you that you enable us to respond with, with reverential worship before you, our consuming fire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.